Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome to CBS Eye on Veterans, the weekly show that covers important issues to the veteran community and some of the most interesting military vets in America. I'm Navy vet and journalist Phil Briggs reporting for ConnectingVets.com. Today we're going to meet the fascinating Jenna Carlton, a Navy veteran, an inspiring social media influencer who founded a Facebook community just for millennial vets. On this page and in this group, she's tackled some seriously tough subjects, but she also regularly posts thought-provoking questions both on Facebook and Instagram, and as an author has created a workbook to help veterans answer the crucial questions about what to do after they leave the military. And along the way, many of these posts and segments have gone viral, and today we'll hear why. So with that, let's say hello to my fellow Navy shipmate, a podcaster, a veteran influencer, Miss Jenna Carlton. Jenna, welcome to the show. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super good. Uh, you were referred to me by somebody, and full disclosure, I had just seen you on LinkedIn. I think it was even the one about why veterans should not help with the recruiting crisis that our military finds ourselves in. And before we tip off even to your backstory... Let's just jump in there to the spicy. Why should veterans really not be quick to help the DOD find its next generation of military service members? Yes. So that was my reaction to a panel that I attended. And it was the the VA press secretary who was going on and on about how veterans should speak up, share about the great things of your service, because all the bad stuff gets in the news um, and we need to outweigh that. And I was looking around this room and I was like, okay, no one's going to say it. I'll go up there and ask this question. How can I feel comfortable recommending service when I know so many people who are hurting and not getting the care, not able to receive their benefits? And I was kind of met with the response of just keep letting us know if that's happening. We're trying our best. Let us know. So that's what I did. I wrote that all up and I let them know. <laughs> It was a it was a great read, and I think it shows that you've got your finger on the pulse of kind of what part of the veteran community is thinking. 
And most especially, you know, as you named it, the millennial veteran group there on Facebook, you know, you've offered support through that Facebook page and by defining the community, by giving them a platform to talk about it. Yeah, you're really uncovering, I think, some things that the guys and ties, they don't always hear about or if it's just the nature of the beast. But I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing. Before we get to how you founded the Facebook support group, the millennial veteran, let's rewind a little bit. Tell me a little bit about the Navy history. Sure. So I joined in 2013, right out of high school. I was um, supposed to be in Intel, but I got in trouble. Surprise, surprise. And I ended up being in weather, which weather is a great job. AGs on the ship were very rare. And I got to go on a carrier. I did an appointment, went to Greece. We went to Dubai, all these fun places. And um, yeah, I I I enjoyed my time in the Navy, but slowly realized I couldn't see myself in a leadership role. I didn't think I would thrive there. Um, and with my interests, I was kind of looking for getting getting more into foreign policy or policy in some capacity. Yeah, sure. You're growing up as you're entering the military, too. How old were you when you joined? I was 19. So at that age, you know, oftentimes it's tough to even see you in a leadership role or sure you can go from E3 to E4, maybe E5. You know, do you want to be managing people? You're still probably only a 21 year old gal or, you know, a 21 year old sailor. I mean, a lot of people at 21, you know, I stayed E4 for a reason. (laughs) Right, right. And also just the leadership styles that I saw, I couldn't see myself doing that. It seemed like whenever somebody got rank, they had to turn on a switch and become a different person instead of just adapting a leadership style that was something they were comfortable with. So I I hated that. And I did not want to be that for lack of better words um, and, and turn on people that I was serving with. Right, right. Yeah. And that's probably one of the biggest changes you make, especially when you go from like enlisted regular enlisted to like chief and senior enlisted like okay now you're giving counseling now you know instead of being the knucklehead that is just hanging out with everybody complaining about having to clean the compartment or the way the divo is acting well now you got to be the chief and they got to be on the the boss's side of every argument uh interesting also interesting your desire for public policy maybe thinking that okay i can make a difference here i can continue to serve and uh you went on to intern on capitol hill Uh, With the House Veterans Affairs Committee, something I've covered early in my career here uh, with CVSI and veterans. And uh, you go first, and then I'll share share why I agree with you. I did not know what I was walking into. I honestly thought that it was legit, like a committee, because, you know, I didn't watch anything. I was just like, I'm going to go do this internship. Maybe they'll be interested in some of my ideas. Um, (laughs) No, that was not the case. I spent most of my time answering the phones and writing letters. But that was very impactful for me because I really got to hear feedback from different generations. And, you know, if you're calling Congress, it's not the first place you're calling. It's usually the last. So these people are very frustrated. They've been trying to get help. Um, It was a lot of older veterans. And they're calling just to get out their frustration. Um, But I also found out that even though I was a veteran and since I I had just gotten out. I and I'm a woman. I'm a young woman. I was like 24. I didn't even consider myself a veteran. But when I would call and they would say, "Are you a veteran?" I just need to talk to a veteran. And I'm like, "Yes." And they would feel more comfortable talking with me. So I found so much power in that. Even though 
these were probably men, mostly men in their 70s, 80s, and they just felt more comfortable talking with me and they felt like I could relate to them. So I, I still carry that with me today. Oh, so cool. What did you think about the policy issues and the things that were being discussed? Uh, what years were you there? I was just there for the summer of 2019, but it was a big, there was a lot of things going on. There was a um, a Blue Water Navy Act was going through, which was allowing Vietnam era um, because you had to be in certain locations if you were exposed to Agent Orange. And now this opened the doors up to so many different coordinates that they were deployed to. So they were able to receive benefits. So that was cool to see roll out. But there was a lot of a lot of frustrating things. This was a time where um, suicide was happening right on VA campuses in cars. So there was a lot of conversations about VA police and there was VA police violence on the rise. So there was a lot of stuff going on. (laughs) Yeah. And it's tough to see them move swiftly. You know, they don't. Uh, there's issues that happen in the news and then people are like, we need to do something. And then when it comes down to the doing of the something, it's a very slow, laborious process. You talked about one aspect of it that you didn't really like, but it was how these resolutions get moved. And sometimes the things that hold it back are like nothing to do with the bill itself. It's politics. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. It's definitely of who wants their name on a bill, who created the bill. You know, Republicans and Democrats will each write something, a solution, um, some piece of policy, and they're very similar, but they might both not get pushed because they're fighting over whose name's on it. And that was very frustrating for me because I was sitting here answering the phones, having people really needing help. And yet we are arguing about who's going to get the credit for this bill. Isn't that crazy? Like, who's going to get the credit? I feel you on that. I I did a deep documentary or a deep dive and a couple podcasts uh, about cannabis. And I want to say that might have been 2017, just as the mental health crisis was beginning, the waves of it were beginning to hit the VA. And all the veteran service organizations aligned in a letter about cannabis. And I remember sitting in this meeting with them and they're like, here it is. Here's the answer. We've got a, a like a new tool in the toolkit. And as of right now, that toolkit, that tool still isn't in the toolbox. There are now, what, 20 some states and Washington, D.C. that have endorsed and legalized cannabis on some level, showing that it has an efficacy for some type of mental health treatment. And today, still the FDA, DEA and Congress have concluded that marijuana has no federally approved medical use for treatment. And thus it remains a schedule one drug. What? Yep. Things move slow. Um, And it's almost like you need that one event to really get things going, to get things on the agenda. And with cannabis, it's hard to have that event, you know? Right. I think the big step forward that's happened is the VA has convened and said that they're going to move forward with research. So wait a few more years to figure out what 25 plus states have already figured out. But uh, we digress. Um, Well, let's see how you go from interning to then founding this Millennial Veterans. So during my internship, you know, I not only found the collective power of veterans, I found so many new resources that a lot of people I know did not know about. So I was looking for a place that I could share them. 
Uh, me and my husband would go to our local legion and we we're definitely younger by at least 15 years, um, which is not a problem. But I was looking for younger veterans because, again, I saw what was hap- what had happened to the Vietnam era veterans and how long it took them to get justice. And I was like, I cannot wait for this to happen. So I wanted to get younger veterans together, especially those who are going through college, um, you know, looking for those benefits, ways to get those benefits and put them all together and Facebook group was my answer. (laughs) Tell me about some of your favorite guests. That's always such a hard question. Um, One of my favorite guests was I got to do in person and she was my best friend from boot camp. And, you know, we've kept in touch all these years and we went out to Vegas recently. So I got to interview her in person and she's now becoming a pilot and just hearing her story of where she came from um, in California and how she's just, you know, kicking out there was it's inspiring to hear that. Um, I've also had a lot of a lot of people on there that are just so vulnerable, people who, you know, really will share what they went through. And that's what my audience loves because they can relate to that. And it's it's inspiring for them to open up because so much of the veteran community is stay hard. We don't want soft in our military. And I'm like, no, you know, I want veteran community to be a place of healing. And I tend to agree with you. I've had veterans on here that have shared some seriously personal things. And in your generation, being so digital, being so ready to just open up and share in a comment thread is a beautiful use, I think, of you know your page, of the support group, and probably explains its massive growth. Uh, when did you know you were on to something? Like, how many followers, how many members did you have when you were kind of like, whoa, this is this is a thing? So I I told myself, I gave myself five years and I was like, you're going to commit to this. You're going to not give up um, because the first two years of anything, especially if you're trying to gain traction on social media, it's it's uphill battle and you're you're going to get crickets. You're not going to get much. Um, So I was on my third year and I had my first reel go viral and it was um, a picture of me in uniform. And I was saying, um, I'm so excited to get out and be who I want to be. And then it was a picture of me. Um, after I got out and it said, I don't know what I want to be. And so many people related to that because when you get out, you feel like you've lost your sense of purpose. Um, you feel like you're you're alone in this. But honestly, we all go through this. And there's, there's a lot of key things that we all go through. Um, losing our identity, losing structure, losing that purpose, all things we go through when we get out. And so when I hit that... Um, maybe I struck that chord with so many people. I was like, yes, that that's it. Like, finally, like, you know, this will help me reach more people because I know everyone goes through this. And you're like, why did it take something so obvious and simple? I've done all these in-depth, well-researched interviews. <laughs> I've thought through all these things. And then something that plain, that basic, that ultimate common denominator takes you from a few hundreds to thousands. And I'll say this, I've seen some of your posts, they already have hundreds of comments and I look and it's 25 minutes old. I'm like, oh my gosh, you just put that up and you've already reached a thousand people saying something about it. So hats off to you for the success that you're having both with the Millennial Veterans Facebook group and of course, Instagram as well. Uh, Where do we want to go next? You tackle some tough conversations with some of your guests and even some of your own content there about military sexual trauma. And in one post, you wrote about the screenshot that shaped your military career. 
I won't get real specific, but it includes some graphic language from fellow sailors who are having a conversation via text. And one of them described you as that banging Navy chick. Tell me about that era and really what we should know about military sexual trauma in the military. Yeah. So I had just gotten to my A school and that's your training right out of boot camp. And, you know, I I was excited, but I had also gained a lot of weight in boot camp. So I was very self-conscious about myself. I was trying to lose weight. um, And on top of that, you know, I just felt weird. You know, once we were able to wear normal clothes, you just feel weird. You're like, how do I dress now? Um, Things are so different. And then you're constantly surrounded by, you know, there's a lot of guys and they're always having conversations about women and women's bodies. Like you, and I, I feel like you, they openly do that. Like a lot of men openly do that. I mean, it's just kind of, it's part of the culture. Um, Yeah. So, so it was just uncomfortable to get that screenshot. I mean, sure it was a personal conversation, but they sent it, someone had sent it to me a little maliciously, like, Hey, people are talking about you. Um, You know, you better watch out or, you know, watch yourself. So I felt insecure. Like, am I putting myself out there? Am I being too flirty? So it's just making me feel self-conscious. And later on, it was, it was just like, it just kind of gets ingrained in you like that shame that I'm the one who did something wrong when really it was not. Yeah. You went on to describe how you kind of dove into studying and like you would, uh, you know, retreat to your room or retreat to the study area, not really engaging socially. And then you're all of a sudden self-conscious about every moment, be it in uniform or as you'd said, out of uniform, you're now hyper sensitive to like any look your way or anything you say. Do you feel that that is like a frequent experience for women in the military? Yes. Yeah. There's this saying in the military that is perception is reality. So if you're perceiving to be even talking to someone that you're not supposed to or flirting with someone, you know, that's your fault. That puts the fault on the person. Um, And I'm a very outgoing person. But even on the ship, you know, I would never go to the gym unless it was at night, you know, or people can't see you as much or there's not as much people because you just don't want to you just don't want to be looked at. And, you know, I would say I would say it's part of the military culture to talk like that and discuss things like that. But it's also, you know, just the environment you're in. There's more men um, you haven't seen shore in 20, 30 days. You know, it, it it's just kind of the atmosphere. So at the time, I didn't think anything of it. But now that, you know, I've had many years to reflect on my experience and I was like, that's not something I would want to put my daughter through an environment like that, where you just feel hypersexualized and you're worried about yourself because it took me years to take away that shame that it brought with it. And that's so unfortunate to hear that, that they feel personally culpable for that. Um, I was on a command similar size to yours, right? We were both on carriers. It's a city underway. There's probably close to 5,000 sailors on that. And when you're in the mix there with the male female ratio, it opens that door to those encounters. Do you think it's more common in military than it would be in the collegiate or the corporate environment? Absolutely. It's way more common. Um, I've never felt like that at my job now. Um, but but again, it, it kind of ties into just the masculinity military culture that the military was founded upon. You know, it, it's meant to be tough and it, the place for women is... Um, 
is new into when you look at the history of war like women's role has really changed so it's um i don't want to say difficult but it it's it's something that leaders have to actively counteract against is comments and just abusing their power as a leader so it's more than just ogling and objectifying and flirting it's it's give me an example of that. Like people encouraging you to be on their detail because you're the chick and they want to get to know you or. I'll be pretty blunt. It can be as harsh as if you don't sleep with me, I'm going to send you somewhere else. I'm going to make your life a living hell while you're at this command. Like threats like that from a senior leader to a younger airman, sailor, Marine, what have you. I've heard Plenty of stories um, in relation to that. And we're back at CBS Eye on Veterans. Today we're talking with a Navy veteran, author, and popular veteran influencer, Jenna Carlton. She founded a wildly popular Facebook group called the Millennial Veterans. The page shares content in a way that captures exactly how this massive veteran audience feels. Take making sincere connections with other 20 and 30-somethings that don't have military experience. This is the SNL clip they used to describe what that feels like. I've been trying to assemble a human personality, and so far I have a hat. It's a good hat. Their posts instantly rack up hundreds of comments, which are often hilarious as they wander on and off topic. But just what is the common consensus among younger military vets about how well their military experience prepared them for life after the military? Oh, most of it is very critical. Once in a while, you will get someone that says, "You," and and again, that, that comes with that pride of like, not ready to talk about things. They were like, I was fine. I got a job right away. I don't get this. Um, all this victimhood you're perpetuating in the veteran community. And, but most people are like, hell no, I did not get the training. That TAPS class was no, none of it, none of it worked. Um, and, and so that's why so many people like the video. That's why so many people shared it because it's relatable. To the flip side of that, the millennial veteran community, do the members of that find that it's the military's job to prepare them for their civilian life? Did they think that by joining the military, they were supposed to have an exit trajectory that the DOD formed for them? Or is some of this just the the tough acknowledgement that life is your path to navigate? Yeah, I've heard some people, I've heard someone... Um, put it this way, like the military is great at training you and bringing you into the military. They're terrible at bringing you out of it into the next phase. And whose job is that? Is the DOD? Is the is it the VA? Or you know, could there be a warm handoff somehow between the two? And honestly, it 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 is very difficult, and it's really dependent on local resources as well as state resources and that's where i feel like veterans we're our best advocates we're going to be our best allies within each other and that's really what we do in the facebook group people reach out from all over hey anybody hiring here just moved need a job hey anybody know where housing is uh is there any resources to help me fix my car i'm in a tight budget 
stuff like that. So that's where I see us just filling in all those cracks between the nonprofits, all the resources and the government help is with each other. Yeah. And looking at some of the comments, I liked how direct it was too, because it didn't require a web form to be filled out or a survey or a interview with a counselor, care provider, um, transition professional. It was just straight up Leroy from Wichita. I'm a welder. I'm here in Kansas, you know, anybody around, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, somebody else is like, oh, well, I live in Lawrence and we're doing this. You should come check this out. It's this immediate connection, which I think is something that um, the millennial community likes the instant likes being able to just communicate directly and not go through some sort of level of bureaucracy, even if it's well-intended. Yes. Yeah. I would say we're very critical of bureaucracy of the government and lack trust. So that kind of isolates us from getting those benefits, but through each other and hearing the goodness that can come from it, we, we build that trust back up. There's some other interesting ones. Uh, I noted one that said, everyone wants to welcome you home from deployment, but not welcome you home when you get out of the military. What is that about? And what kind of responses did you feel? Do millennial veterans feel like they should have gotten more when they announced, I'm out of the military? Or or is it like, you're out of the military, now just go find your job like all of us had to do when I've lost my job as a civilian? <laughs> Right, right. So I could see how people would be like, oh, where's my congratulations for that getting out? That's not my point. My point was I was going through my pictures of when I came from from deployment and all the welcome cards and all the all the people made signs and that. And then I was thinking, um, you know, sometimes actually when you get out, your chain of command actually is pretty they're not supportive of you. They're like, good luck. I don't think you're going to make it. You should really reenlist they're really harsh on you. They're, they're not happy about your decision. And sometimes they can even retaliate against you and put you at a, at a different command, or you're going to go out to a ship now since you're getting out anyhow. You, we're going to put you wherever we need you. So it, it's just kind of the lack of support. And and I'm not blaming families or friends that ha haven't served. They don't know how to support their veteran that's coming home. And they may not even realize that that first year out is the highest mortality rate for our veterans. You are most likely to die by suicide that first 12 months when you get out. So it's such a crucial point. And that's really what I was highlighting on. If we really want to get these numbers down, if we want to help our veterans, we got to help them get out of the military that most vulnerable time. So many of these were just so thought provoking. I found myself talking to my buddies and my wife about it. Like as I scrolled through your Facebook page the last couple of days, it was amazing. <laughs> um, what would you be doing now if you hadn't joined the military for a second? I thought this was a dangerous reflection to look backwards because like we, I think from what I've learned in my five decades is that like looking through the windshield is the most important looking through the rear view is oh. dangerous. And, you know, even jelly roll shouted that out, you know, you got way more life to live. It's better to look through the windshield than the rear view mirror um, at the recent uh, CMAs. Uh, hmm. What kind of responses did you get when you posed the question, what would you be doing now if you hadn't joined the military? First of all, I don't like that sentiment. I think we absolutely need to look in the rear view mirror not while you're driving, but when you're parked and you can sit somewhere and reflect, look in that mirror and see how far you've come and see what 
what you went through and how it's made you who you are. Because people always ask you, you know, when you're getting out, they ask you what's next, but they never asked you, what did you just go through? And that's why it takes so long for us to realize why we are the way we are. That's why disgruntled veterans stay disgruntled because they're not looking back and figuring out that puzzle of what they went through and what it made them, why it made them disgruntled. Um, But to go back to the question, it was very divisive and I knew it would be because I swear probably 50-50, half of the people said I would be dead. I would be in prison. You know, the military was the best thing I could do. It brought me to where I am. I'm thankful for it because I would be on drugs. I would be a stripper, whatever. (laughs) Legit, they were saying that. And then the other half was saying, I would have been happy. I would be richer right now. I wouldn't have this trauma. I would um, have my friends all around me. So it was very interesting to see the reactions to it. And I think that just shows that we can be both grateful and critical of our service at the same time. That was a great answer. And I do commend you for being able to say, hey, you know what? Look back, see what you've done. And if anything, that could validate you on any future pursuit you have. Here's a question I wrote, probably not, it doesn't need an answer specifically, but I'm just curious your thoughts on this. Is it helpful for them to try to answer these questions, do you think? Or is it unfair in that there's still so much of everyone's life ahead of them that they're almost unable to answer the totality of that question because at 29, you haven't lived through everything that you will have at 49. Right. And to that, I say, I feel like by the time you get out of the military, you've probably already had one marriage. You've had one close death of someone close to you. You've had, you've seen a a fair part of the world. Like you live so much in that, even if just that first enlistment, you go through so much at such a young age that those around you and those who have not joined the military, they haven't gone through that, right? They've most likely gone to college and now they're working their first job if you've done that first or second enlistment. So again, you can't relate to them. So that's why I like to come in and ask these questions and help us all relate to each other. We've been through a lot of stuff already, but I also love to focus on the future and think about, you know, ask questions like, what's something that you always wanted to do when you get out and why aren't you doing it now? You know, so you got to mix up the questions with, you know, the reflection, but also let's plan for the future. What's that next step you need to make to get where you dreamed of being? Through engaging social posts, her and her co-founders use an edgy sense of humor that really connects with the younger generation of today's vets. Like this post that's directed at the challenge of a post-military civilian job interview featuring Jennifer Lawrence. But it's going to be okay. You just have to relax, have fun, and don't say You not only do this on the Facebook forum, you not only do this with your show, uh, Vet Chat, on Instagram, but you wrote a book. You wrote the book on it for the millennial veteran. I dig that. It's called The Veteran Workbook. Uh, Share with me a little bit about what I find in The Veteran Workbook. 
So Phil, I always say my superpower is asking questions. As you can see, that's a lot of what I do. So that's pretty much what the workbook is. I'm asking questions. And so it's a journal style. It's something you're going to have to fill out yourself through this workbook. The veteran has the pen in their hand and they're writing their story. They're writing their future. They're recreating those bad habits that we may have picked up in the military. They're rebuilding that good structure we had in the military, but just kind of tuning it to what fits your values um, and what you want out of life. So you can, you can head towards that dream future that you always, that you got out of the service for. Now, why journaling though? Cause I noticed the four categories, reflection, future planning, building structure and redefining yourself. And with each one of those four categories, then there's like, a, like little exercises you do. Why journaling? Were you into journaling when you were younger or is that something that's personally helped you? Yes, I've always had a journal. I've always had some notebook. And even on deployment, I've had a journal. And it was my lessons learned journal. Every time I went through something heavy, I'd go through and I'd write it. And, and I wrote it for my kids because I wanted them to be able to relate to me at the same age I was at. So I've always I've always been journaling and I found so much reflection in that. And I wanted to share that. I was like, veterans could really benefit from this. And I know all the questions to ask. So why don't I put them all together in a nice format? And I really wrote the book. So any veteran of any era, it doesn't matter how long it's been, you're going to relate to this. And you might not relate to every single category, but you can flip around. It doesn't have to be done in order. Wow, that's cool. So really not just a millennial veteran workbook on transition, but for any era. And I think that's cool because... The people that journal, I think, are in touch with a kind of wisdom about themselves that is healthy for everybody. But let's face it, we all know the vet bro that doesn't have a lot of self-awareness, has a lot of tattoos, uh, a pronounced beard, uh, you know, his muscles and he's just tough. But, you know, that guy, this book is for him, too. This book is for me, middle-aged guy that's, you know, just raising kids and living in the burbs. This book's for all of us. It's for all of you. And that's why I made it plain and brown. And I called it a workbook. I didn't call it a journal because I know the tough guys don't want to be carrying around a journal. So that's why it's a workbook because we do work. You have, you have my friends and I so figured out, Jenna. I'm almost <laughs> intimidated by your ability to understand us at your age. Uh, good stuff, man. Good stuff. Last question. And, uh, you know, this may or may not have something profound, but. I really do want to ask you, uh, based on all the years, how many years you've been doing this? This is my fourth year. Yeah, fourth year. Four years in, I'm dying to know, what is the most important thing you've learned from your fellow millennial vets? Oh, what a a loaded question. Because I've learned so much. And I, I think just seeing others, I've learned so much about myself and been able to share. But honestly, the most important thing I've learned is just the power of being vulnerable and laying everything out and using the worst things that happen to you as your superpower and putting them right on the open. That's what really makes you strong. You know, if, if we are living in a hard shell and we're not sharing with ourselves, there's no room for connection and veterans who have been through so much, we need to soften up. We need to share those things in order to, have that that healing and go through it and that's 
that's really it. It's just being vulnerable is, is, is more brave than, um, false strength. And vulnerability, not to be confused with weakness. Yeah. So cool. I've never felt more connected to people than after the loss of my brother and, uh, the loss of my father, both of which I was right there for. And when I, when I talked to veterans, you know, for years, I, I didn't understand, you know, their trauma from combat. You know, they lost a brother, they lost a sister, they lost somebody in their platoon. I mean, it was combat and I felt like I couldn't share with them because I didn't have that lived experience. But when I did lose members of my family due to health reasons, I, I found rather than salting that away and never sharing it. Now, whenever I hear someone struggling, I join the conversation and I try to open up and I try to bring that sense of like, I, I've been wounded. I've been hurt by that exact same pain. Mm-hmm. It's different for you than it is for me. It's a different person. It's a different situation, but the pain, the pain I can relate to. And I think that that is a beautiful sentiment that you're encouraging people to do because if you just salt it away and try to be tough vet bro on the outside all the time, you're, you're, what did you say? Not making room for not making room for growth and you're further isolating yourself from connections that could be there. I mean, there's, there's a problem in our community about being more veteran and maybe this is kind of what you're talking about. Um, a lot of combat veterans, you know, they've been through a lot of stuff and they feel like other people can't relate to them in the veteran community. But I promise you, you have a lot more in common with other veterans by simply serving in the military than you think. And just opening up, even though you and I can't relate to what it's like to be in a combat role, I can relate to so many other things and I I can be a space for you to listen to you. I don't think you have to go through something to um, help someone else heal from it. All the more reason. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. I'm glad of the success of the Millennial Veteran Facebook page, uh, of your Instagram. Uh, I'm just so glad that when you pose these questions, I see hundreds and hundreds of replies uh, just, you know, within a day. It shows to me you are connecting and, you know, you're doing exactly, I think, what this book sets out to do, what the group initial goal was. And, you know, I just wish you all the success and uh, an inspiring influencer, which I think the world needs a little more of. Need a few more influencers doing God's work out there. So awesome stuff. Where do I find you? Where do I, obviously the millennial veteran Facebook group on Facebook, where do I find you elsewhere and the book? Yes. The best place to find me is Instagram. The link in my bio shows the Facebook group, um, the podcast. You can always send me a message on Instagram. I love to hear from people. Um, yeah. Jenna Carlton, Navy veteran, inspiring influencer and i'm gonna get in the comment threads i'm gonna i'm gonna throw something out there see if i can break off some knowledge or at least something to laugh at yes yes great to talk to you phil and thank you for allowing me on this space and i hope um anyone listening out there if you feel alone after service you feel like you're having a difficult time you're not alone and there's a place for you so join our facebook group Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.